Psalm chapter 9, or Psalm 9, I should say. Psalm 9. We'll read the whole chapter, a little longer than the last couple we've read, but a fairly short, uh, fairly short psalm, only 20 verses in Psalm 9. We'll pray and then we'll jump in. Father God, we come to you tonight and God, I thank you for all these people that you've sent to this place and these people have come, God, to hear your word. They have come to uh, let you speak to them and so I pray, God, that tonight you would speak to them through your word, that something that they would hear read, that something that they would read, something that they would see in your word, God, that the Holy Spirit would, uh, would let them understand what you're trying to get us to understand, dear Lord. Open our heart, God. I pray that you would... Humble me. I pray that you would just hide me behind the cross. I, I pray that you would just give me the words to say tonight, dear Lord. And I pray that it would be beneficial for each one that's here. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The superscription of Psalm 9 says, For the choir director, according to Muth Laban, a Davidic song. Now, it seems like every week there is some word in the superscription or some word within the psalm itself in which we don't really know exactly what it means. And this, uh, according to Muth Laban, is another one of those terms that nobody is really sure exactly what that means. It very uh, likely could have some uh, type of musical, uh, something to do with music. It could be uh, a person. Uh, some would say that it means the death of a son, but would be the proper translation of that. There are many different views as to what this idea of this psalm according to Muth Laban means. So I don't know if it's a musical term. I don't know if it's, if it's a person of the past. And it's really not... Uh, that important for us to know what it means, but it is there, and I wish I could give you guys a good answer, but so many of these words that we see in these psalms are just not words that, that translate into our language, that have got lost throughout the years, and we just don't know what they mean. But feel free to go and research these if you have a, a commentary or use the internet, and you can read about all these different words and kind of some of the different uh, theories as to what they may mean. This psalm is attributed to David. It is a Davidic psalm. Now, we don't know for sure if David would have wrote this psalm. Some of these psalms we don't know. These are, these are, are, are the best guesses of the theologian that this is probably a psalm that David had written. And with many of these psalms, we don't really know when they were written. There are many uh, ideas and thoughts as to what may have been going on in the life of David when this psalm was written. But again, it's really hard for us to tell. But even if we don't have all those details and we don't understand all the specific words and maybe all the situations surrounding some of these psalms or other books of the Bible or stories that we read, we still can understand the point of what's going on. Whatever situation that the psalmist, David or whoever it may have been, was going through, we can, we can understand what they were going through. We can understand uh, their response and hopefully we can see how we need to apply that to our lives. Verse 1, I will thank Yahweh with all my heart. I will declare all your wonderful works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name most high. 
Now this is very similar, starting off at least, to what the psalm we looked at last week was. It, it really starts off as a psalm of praise. David here is praising the Lord. He's recognizing how wonderful and marvelous God is, and he is just glorifying the Lord. He is lifting the Lord's name up on high, and he is in praise of the Lord. And we see in the next few verses, I believe, exactly why he was in praise of the Lord. That was that he had encountered some enemies that were obviously giving him a very difficult time, and God had... Uh, apparently delivered him from these enemies. He, uh, God had, had uh, brought justice to David and the ones who were trying to bring harm to him. And I believe that that's why David was giving God that praise that we see in the first couple of verses. Verse 3, When my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you. So David realizes that even though his enemies may have seemed very strong, those who were coming against him, those situations or those people, whatever it may have been that were coming against him, uh, they seemed like uh, perhaps an insurmountable mountain, a mountain that, that he looked at all these things in front of him and he said, man, God, how am I ever going to get past all these enemies? How am I ever going to get past all these situations? But what David realized is that the God that he served was greater than any of the people or situations that he would encounter. He knew no matter how fierce the trials that he went through were, he knew that his enemies would stumble and perish before the Lord. So he's praising the Lord because God is delivering him. God had delivering or is delivering him, and God, uh, David is giving God the praise for that. Verse 4, For you have, have upheld my just cause, or, or my case, you are seated on your throne as a righteous judge. Now here we have this idea of the Lord as being a judge. This is, this is not an uncommon thing for us to see this type of language of the Lord being a judge. There are, uh, as I was reading through this psalm and studying it over the last couple of days, I, 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 I couldn't help but think about revelation. I couldn't help but think about how God is going to ultimately uh, deal with all of his enemies, all those who are doing evil and wicked uh, when the end times come. I couldn't help but think about that when I was reading this psalm and thinking about this idea of God being a judge. And God is a just judge. He is a righteous judge. He is not like our worldly judges who sometimes may uh, judge in someone's favor because they like them or perhaps because they're paid off or perhaps there's some political gain for them in their career. And we see that sometimes in our world today, but God is a just judge. He is going to judge and He is going to be able to see the righteous from the unrighteous. He is going to be able to know the difference between the good and the evil. Verse 5, You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have erased their name forever and ever. So not only has God uh, dealt with these enemies who are, who are troubling David in whatever way they were, but God has dealt with them in a sense that they will, they will experience God's judgment forever and forever. And while, while David is here uh, with all this wickedness going on, uh, as we saw in the verse before, we see the Lord is seated on the throne. And we need not forget that. Sometimes as Christians, I hear, I hear Christians say that sometimes. Well, God's still on the throne. We'll go through a tough situation. Somebody will be sick. And you'll hear somebody say, but God is still on the throne. 
and God is a righteous judge. And just as we sometimes say, God is still on the throne, David also acknowledged that. He knew that God was there watching over and in control of everything. Even if we don't always understand it, God is still on the throne. Verse 6, The enemy has come to eternal ruin. You have uprooted the cities, and the very memory of them has perished. So the enemy has, has come to eternal ruin. This, this punishment, this judgment that's going to be taking place on those who are evil, on those who are wicked, is an eternal punishment that is going to take place. He says, you have uprooted the cities. Now, that's one of those verses where it's kind of hard to tell in the actual language as to who the uprooter of the city was. Depending on your translation, it may word it in a way that makes it seem as though God has uprooted the cities, or it may make it seem like it is the, the enemy who have uprooted the cities. I'm not sure exactly which one is the accurate uh, reading of the text there. But either way would kind of fit, no matter which way you look at it. Whether it's the enemies who have uprooted and done all this evil to the cities, they are going to be punished. Perhaps the evil ones have set up camp inside these cities and is saying that the punishment on them is God uprooting these cities and causing, and causing mayhem for them and bringing judgment on them. So I don't know what the exact... Uh, reading should be of that text as to who destroyed the cities, but either way, I believe, fits within the context of these verses. Verse 7, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for judgment. He judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. God is a fair judge. If we stand before the Lord one day, and, 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 and we have not accepted Jesus Christ and God passes judgment on us and it's an eternity in the lake of fire. It's an eternity separated from Him. It's not because God's not fair. God is very fair with us. More fair probably than He should be. And David realizes that. David knows that he serves a fair judge, that he serves a fair God. Verse 9, The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed. A refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Yahweh. We need to be reminded of that. That's that's a that's a kind of a theme that that we really read a lot, and we've we've talked about some in the Psalms and in many different verses that we've covered over the last couple of years. The idea of God being our refuge, God being our fortress, God being our place of protection, and we are continually reminded about that in Scripture. But I think we need to be reminded about that. Because we continually have trials and enemies coming against us and hard times coming against us. And we always need to be reminded where we need to go to. Even though we have a head knowledge of that, sometimes in the midst of our sinfulness or in the midst of our situations, sometimes our judgment gets clouded. And even though we know we should go to the Lord, we may need to be reminded that the Lord is our refuge. He is the refuge for the oppressed. I couldn't help but think about the Free Burma Rangers and uh, Free the Oppressed, how the work that they do and where they go and what they do to, to take these people who are being oppressed and deliver them to safety and show them God's love. And David realizes that that's just the God we serve, a God who delivers those of us who are in those hard times, those of us who are oppressed. 
Verse 10, those who know your name trust in you because you have not abandoned those who seek you, Yahweh. Those who know the name of the Lord trust in the Lord. I hear people say sometimes, how do people in the world do it when hard times come? People that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, people that don't know God's Word, people that don't have the Holy Spirit, don't have the Comforter there. How do they do it? How do they deal with those situations? Well, it's important for us as Christians to remember they need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if they're not turning to Jesus Christ in those situations, they are probably turning to something else. But David says, those who know your name trust in you. And it's our job as Christians to make sure that those who don't have Jesus Christ in their heart do hear His name so that they too can trust in Him. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 10, verse 14. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want to. I'm just going to read it real quick. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 says, But how can they call on Him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about Him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And that's good stuff right there. David says, those who have heard the name of the Lord trust in Him. And Paul says, if people are going to trust in the Lord, they need to hear the name. And how are they going to hear the name of the Lord? Unless somebody goes and tells them the name of the Lord. And I don't know about you guys, but I believe that every Christian wants every non-Christian to experience the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. So that when they are in times of trouble, just as David is and just as we sometimes are, that they have a hope that they can turn to in the midst of their affliction. Verse 11, Saying to the Lord who dwells in Zion, Proclaim His deeds among the nations. Here we're going back to praising again, kind of going back and forth between the judgment of the wicked and the praising of the Lord. And David says, Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Now we see that word Zion many times in Scripture, and it could mean several different things. I tend to read into this text here that it's talking about God being in heaven. It's talking about the heavenly Zion. But Zion was a literal worldly place too. It was also the city of David. It was right there in Jerusalem. And so Zion was a real place in this world, and Zion is also a reference to heaven out of this world. Zion is also a reference sometimes to the children of Israel or the place of Jerusalem. And so uh, whatever the interpretation is here, the point is being that God is dwelling in Zion, whether it's in heaven or God is dwelling among the people in Jerusalem and in a spiritual sense. And David recognizes that, and so he says, saying to the Lord, because the Lord is with us, or the Lord is watching down over us from Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. If God has done a good deed, a good work in our life, then we should be ready and willing and able to proclaim what God has done for us. For the one who seeks an accounting for our bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So David is reminding us here that the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. That is, God is going to bring justice when the day comes. He is going to bring justice to those who have been wronged. He is going to judge those who have wronged those who have been done wrong. And he says he does not forget the cry of the afflicted. 
Sometimes we may feel that God isn't hearing us, that God doesn't care about us. I'm sure uh, that there are many in this world that may feel that way. There are probably thousands of people in this world somewhere tonight who are greatly afflicted by some enemy. Uh, Perhaps they've been beaten. Perhaps they're in the most horrible situations that we could ever imagine. And these are Christian people who are praying to the Lord. But day after day, they're still in that situation. And I have no doubt that there are some in our world that feel that they are afflicted and that they are forgotten. And there may be some in this very church tonight that feel that they are afflicted and that they are forgotten. That, that God doesn't care anymore. That the reason why these struggles, these afflictions keep going on is because God doesn't care. But David says otherwise. God does not forget about us in our afflictions. We don't always understand why God will allow those things to happen to us or why God will allow those horrible things to happen to others. But God has a reason for it. And sometimes He's trying to teach us a lesson. Sometimes He's trying to get our attention. There are many reasons why God could let us suffer, and I can't even begin to guess or or assume what they may be because God is God. And even though we may not know why we go through these afflictions that we go through, we can know that God hadn't forgot about us. It's not that God has gotten busy with somebody else or something else, and and all of a sudden He looks down and says, Oh, wait, I forgot about those people at Enterprise. Man, they're in the middle of an affliction. I better get back over there and help them. I know sometimes it may feel that way, but David reminds us that God has not forgotten about us. Verse 13, Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death. He's saying, be gracious to me, Lord. He says he's at the, the gates of death. He, 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 he may feel like that his enemies are going to be able to come in and they are going to take his life. He feel, may feel like he's, in, he's as low as he can go and there's no way he can get it through and he's just barely hanging on. He's, he's knocking on death's door, so to speak. He's at the gates of death and he's saying, God, be gracious to me. Consider my afflictions at the hands of those who hate me. Perhaps he's asking that God would give him grace in a situation. Perhaps he's asking that God would, would give him uh, the grace to be able to forgive those who are causing him affliction, that he would be gracious to those who are causing him affliction. But he is seeking the grace of the Lord. Verse 14, So that I may declare all your praises, I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of your daughter Zion. He says, look, Lord, I'm in the middle of this affliction. I'm in the middle of this hard time. But I want you to lift me out of this. I want you to get me through this. I want you to take care of my enemies so that I can bring you praise. And here we see the word Zion again. He says, I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. Now, daughter Zion or daughter of Zion there probably refers to Jerusalem or refers to the nation of Israel. And he's saying he wants to go back to to God's people and he wants to rejoice over what God has done, over how God has delivered him from his affliction. Verse 15, now we kind of take a shift back uh, back to that idea of the wicked and what's going to happen to them. He says, the nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they have concealed. The Lord has revealed Himself. He has executed justice, striking down the wicked by the work of their hands. I 
I think about the, the, the phrase, you reap what you sow. These wicked have done all these evil. They've done all these things. And perhaps to try to, to try to thwart God's people, to try to ruin God's plan, to try to destroy a David or destroy the Israelites, whatever their methods were, whatever they had planned, it backfired on them. Just like Haman that we see in the, in the, in the story where he bit that gallow and he was going to hang old uh, Mordecai. And boy, his plan backfired. And guess what? He got hung on his own noose. And that's what David is pointing out to us here, is that the evil are going to get what they deserve. They are digging a pit as they continue to do their evil deeds. And one day, David knows that they are going to fall into that pit. Verse 17, The wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the oppressed will not always be forgotten. The hope of the afflicted will not perish. You see, there's hope there. For the one who trusts in the Lord, there, those afflicted who put their trust in the Lord, there is hope for them. For those who are afflicted that do not put their trust in the Lord, there is no hope. But here, again, David is reminding us, as he did in the verses before, that God has not forgotten the oppressed and that God is the hope of the afflicted and one day He will deliver them. Verse 19, Rise up, Lord, did not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know they are only men. Selah. So he's saying, God, put them in their place. Let them recognize who they are. These evil people who had come against David, they probably didn't fear the Lord. They definitely didn't trust in the Lord. And perhaps they had thought a little too highly of themselves. And David is saying, put them in their place. Let them know that they are only men. That there's nothing special about them. That they would be humbled. David was humbled. David realized who God was. David realized the power of the Lord. And David knew that it was the Lord who had delivered him and would deliver him from whatever situations that he come through. David knew that God was the only hope that he had in his affliction. And he knew that God was the only one that could free the oppressed. Whether it was him or his people or whoever it may have been, David knew who to trust. Do you know who to trust? Let's pray. Father God, we come to you tonight and we thank you that we can trust you. And I pray, God, that you would just help us to come to you. Maybe there are some in here that, that feel kind of hopeless tonight or feel afflicted tonight, dear Lord. I pray that they would have heard these words of David and that they would learn from them, dear Lord. That they would just be patient to know that justice will one day be served, God. Even if it's not as quick as we want to, we won't... We want people that do evil to be punished. We want justice to be served, and we want it now. But God, sometimes we have to wait. Sometimes uh, you, you take a little longer with things than, than we would take, God. So help us to be patient and know that on that day of judgment, you who sit on the throne, God, you will make all things right. You will judge the righteous and judge the wicked, God, and, and reward us accordingly. So God, I pray that if there's one night that's struggling, that, that needs hope, that they would find that hope in you. In Jesus' name I pray it. Amen.